When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to We Dig Metal Evolution, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Sam Gunn's Metal Evolution documentary series, hosted by Nate Wilcox with Eugene S. Robinson of the art punk band Oxbow and entertainment lawyer Alexi Ald. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate, Eugene, and Alexi discuss the 80s glam metal scene, which roared out of Hollywood to conquer the world via MTV. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're back again with Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson to continue our discussion of Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution series that aired on VH1 a few years back. The fifth episode is called Glam and covers the era when the Sunset Strip ruled MTV and MTV ruled the world. Following in the footsteps of Van Halen, the 80s saw a wave of California metal bands led by Motley Crue and then Guns N' Roses dominate the zeitgeist with a style called hair metal, pop metal, or glam. Fellas, who wants to go first? Who's got the most touching glam metal story? Um, Nobody? I, I got, Nobody? I got, yeah, I, let's I got, Mine, actually, I say a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, the guitar player for Whipping Boy was that, hanging out at the Whiskey right when that transition was happening where, you know, hardcore guys with like a minor change of outfit could actually hang out at the Whiskey and things would be cool. And... Uh, He's with this girl, Michelle, and uh, he and Michelle and his his wife at the time were having a, a wonderful threesome. And uh, <laughs> and he's Michelle, 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 over and over. And it's like some guy who's clearly wants to make the threesome a foursome. And it's like, ah, who the hell is it? And then, you know, she goes, oh, it's this creep. His name is David. I don't know, David something. He looks over. And it's David Lee Roth. <laughs> My well, buddy, he can't. He he, he can't come. Okay, that could have happened, you know. So, yeah, that's my glam rock. Well, that's quite a tale. Quite a tale. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I think. I think Sam Dunn sets it off right, right from the beginning. And the first thing he says is, "Growing up, the one side of metal I couldn't stand was glam metal, 
hair metal, pop metal, whatever you want to call it. To me, the style didn't have the power and aggression that I loved about metal music. And the band seemed like boy bands put together by music execs just to sell records, which uh, was pretty much my impression too. But I think that the thing that leaving out is that, especially in the seventies, especially when Van Halen broke through that Mm -hmm. all bets were on punk and new wave. Nobody thought metal was going to come back. David Lee Roth was just a joke who was imitating Jim Dandy Mangrum of Black Oak, Arkansas and and transparently patently imitating the dude. And nobody thought Van Halen. Yeah. Him and that. We'll get to Axl Rose because because David Lee Roth just stole the guy's stage act. Axl Rose actually swiped his singing style. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. which makes Jim Dandy actually a pretty important figure in the history of heavy metal. I mean, yeah. you know, those are two of the biggest frontmen, and and his persona non grata for whatever reasons, <clears throat> because maybe people have listened to Black Oak Arkansas albums, but that's uh, neither here. Nor- some of my best friends love Boa, so I, I, I guess yeah, say. no, I love something that kind of put. But, but, uh, but so so that's so it was a little bit of an underdog, especially in the Van Halen era. But even even through to Motley Crue and Quiet Riot, they still weren't, you know, they weren't Golden Boys. It wasn't it wasn't a given. Um, and then and they and they do come back in right or wrong because remember when they talked about metal or Van Halen in the early metal episode, American Division. All they talked about with Van Halen was David Lee Roth. They didn't talk about Eddie Van Halen, who's obviously the name of the band and, and, and his guitar playing was a big part of it. So now they rectify that. They've got George Lynch and Ben Lemer and others talking about who's a circus magazine, former editor in chief talking about how Eddie Van Halen's guitar style changed everything. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's totally fair. I mean, Eddie Van Halen did have in some ways a revolutionary guitar style. In other ways, he was a clone of Eric Clapton. Like if you, if you, just was an absolute student of Eric Clapton and, and uh, yeah, the, the way Clapton solos would cut through and cream Ben Halen's doing the same thing his tone, everything else. He said change. He didn't necessarily change, say change for the better. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I try to, I try to stay out of aesthetic judgments as much as possible. And, and I enjoyed plenty of Van Halen records. So I think Van Halen was certainly kind of the pinnacle that, slides down to the rest of this era like you know i mean what do you mean van halen, what do you mean pinnacle that slides down are oh, you about to say well i mean van halen was i think van halen had a couple good records all the way through yep, i mean i agree you know and and i mean their first three four or five records were pretty good women and children first and van halen one van halen two i remember being desperately disappointed when diver down came out i can literally remember four or five of us in the parking lot at the middle school listening to diver down on a jam box and just being kind of like yeah this isn't what we were hoping for but and then 1984 was a whole different thing it was it was something kind of soulless about his uh technical uh perfection you know uh little bit just a just a little little bit and it, it spawned a whole generation of similarly soulless guitar players you know it it, um, it did trickle down badly i mean yeah. and became a dead end like it at at one point in, in 1985 if you would have said who's the most influential rock guitarist of the 70s it would hands down have been eddie van halen but after slash comes along nobody has gonna... played like that since then you know yeah basically i mean it, it's it's 
I can remember seeing Debbie Gibson working security at a Debbie Gibson show, and her guitarist was totally finger tapping and, and whammy barring, just just going Only crazy. In his but uh, but you know you don't hear too much of that in a serious rock context. Um, what, what kind of show is hiring you as security? <laughs> the Debbie Gibson show. I mean. At, at the Frank Irwin Center. Come on, it was, you know. That's even but the, the, <laughs> the power went to my head. I, I never could do it again. It was, it was, but that's, that's neither here nor there. And so then they segue into Motley Crue, the second act, and, and basically tell how Van Halen had inspired these other younger musicians to go to the strip and just endure the poverty and grind it out. And there's this promise of, of making it. And Motley Crue totally did that. If you've ever read The Dirt by Neil yes. Strauss. Um, Must read. You know. and, and like the crew, I hated in high school because I hated high school and I hated everybody that was there with me and they all loved the crew. But going back and, t and listening again, their first two albums I think are pretty good. I think they've held up fairly well. And Dr. Field wasn't all that bad, it, you know. I have more respect for the crew than, than I have for many, many bands of this era, not just metal bands. So I, I feel like they've held up fairly well, but they, they basically tell the story of their lifestyle, you know, how they lived above the whiskey, go, go. They, there was a circuit of clubs, the Troubadour, the Gazaris, the Starwood, the whiskey that, that you could play. There was um, seven nights a week of metal by the peak of the strip in the mid to late eighties. But still, Motley Crue had to put out their first album independently on their own leather records, L-E-A-T-H-U-R, with an umlaut of it. Uh, I love it. But um, Too Fast for Love very quickly, though, was picked up, went major label. And um, and they do they do get Nicky Six talking about the New York Dolls influence. Because if, if you read Nicky Six or listen to him talk at all, I mean, this guy is just an acolyte of Johnny Thunders all the way. The New York Dolls are absolutely, you know, his lodestone. I don't think he was really, I wouldn't call him punk influenced, but I would say he was very proto-punk influenced by the New York Dolls. And, and that, and, you know, because I used to scratch my head, like, if Motley Crue's so punk, why are they such atavistic, you know, jock meathead idiots? But then I realized there's nothing in the New York Dolls ethos that's inconsistent with what they did, basically. They just mm. took it in a different direction than other Dolls ethos acolytes like the sex pistols went in a different direction but and they do get it right that nikki six was a big conceptualizer who had a vision and a concept and you know and and the crew totally um you know pulled it off pulled it off all the way and then they get to the us festival and they talk about how this was you know the heavy metal night of the us festival was the biggest one of the biggest concerts uh in history between two hundred fifty thousand and four hundred thousand people but what they leave out about the Us Festival, and they do talk about how Molly Crew and Quiet Riot have big, big gigs there, but they totally leave out this classic war of words between Van Halen and the Clash. Do you remember this, Eugene? That that mm. Van Halen and the Clash just had this multi-year back and forth dissing each other. And I've always found it hilarious that Van Halen would be dissing the musicianship of the Clash because Van Halen literally has one part of one song that's not in four four time. Michael yeah. Anthony, I don't know if he if he knew there were more than one string on the bass, you know, and the Clash played in dozens of time signatures. They played rockabilly, they played reggae, they played punk. They they could do all this kind of stuff. Technically, the Clash were one of the best musical 
sets of musicians in rock history. But because Mick Jones didn't do twiddly, twiddly, twiddly solos, Van Halen thought, you know, we're the classy musicians here and the Clash is not. So kind of a, a side tangent there. Then we get to Quiet Riot and talk about the producer, Spencer Proffer, who, who heard uh, Slade's uh, version of Come On, Feel The Noise, the original version, on, on the radio, which is unusual because it was an English hit, but the Slade never could make it in the States, probably because they were ugly as sin. And, and glam didn't click in the States beyond T-Rex's one song, Bang It Gone, Get It On. And even David Bowie's glam stuff didn't hit in the States. So Slade's just this fortune of hit singles waiting to be exploited. The dude clicks to this, goes out to a heavy metal club, sees Quiet Riot, and they don't mention though that Quiet Riot had been out there as long as Van Halen. Like this, these guys slogged it out from the mid seventies on, and that Randy Rhodes was in Quiet Riot yeah. for years. Kevin like, Dubrow was a, um, he was a, wasn't he a music critic also at first? I thought that that's how his what his background might, was. It's like Neil Tennant. Well yeah. It's like the guy from the Pet Shop Boys. He's like, wait a second, hold on, I can do this shit. <laughs> except it was a long hard road to the top and i just can't believe they didn't mention randy Rhodes at all although i don't know how they would fit it into the narrative necessarily and i've also always wondered how on earth was randy Rhodes in a band with these guys because quiet riot i can remember a dark winter night in like 85 about 18 months after their song was a big hit and we're in somebody's crappy car and it's cold and we're driving around and the tape gets eaten. So we start looking on the floor of the car for something else to listen to. And we we get Quiet Riot out. And so it's like, okay, yeah, that'll be all right. And put it on. Get through Come On, Feel the Noise. And it's just garbage. Like, Even Bang Your Head. <laughs> Bang Your Head was the one where we were kind of like, you know, at first we're rocking out to it. And then we're just like, eh. and then you get to the rest of the album. And I mean, there is just nothing That's all there. glam metal. It's funny you say that because that was all glam metal. I remember when I would get fooled because there's a good single and like, I'm going to buy the album. And then you, or I'm the tape really, I'm going to buy the tape. And then you buy the tape and the tape is garbage and it's staring at you for months yeah. because it sucks yeah. and only yeah. one good <laughs> single or two good songs on it. And it's there. You don't want to throw it out because what it costs, like, you know, you don't want to throw it out, but it's there staring at you. So many, I went through so many, it didn't take that many for me to yeah. just stop and just not buy that shit, you know, anymore. But, uh, you know, it's, there's a reason why you, you know, said earlier with regard to, to Guns N' Roses, there's a totally standing out from any of those dudes, you know, I mean, decades later, like that appetite for destruction still holds up. So. Well, this is where they, they kind of touch on it. I mean, this is where the video really did them a great favor, right? Because video, music video at the time was fundamentally, a, 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 you know, a single shop, right? Yep. You know, yep. I mean, so you would go out and you would buy, and this this is probably what hastened the arrival of like rock mixtapes, because you'd go out and belong to that Columbia record group and yep. buy, I'm going to get this. I mean, this you listen to two songs and the rest would just dreck you yep. know is it 
uh, record labels got one over, but with videos, you felt like, you know, it's like Prince in Purple Rain. Play one song, done for the evening. I've never been at a show and see a band. The only band I've seen play one song is Gigi Allen, and it wasn't oh. even a song. He played one note and a riot, a riot broke out. So generally, you know, the music video format, and they touch on that, of course, not only serve from a visual angle, but really from a song angle too. It's, it's easy to stay fucking, you know, 100% with a six-minute song, five-minute well, song. One thing they didn't mention about Guns N' Roses, you talk about just the, the singles and the music video. The thing that got Guns N' Roses, my introduction to them was MTV actually had like live from the film, they, they had some concert of Guns N' Roses. And from beginning to end, it was like hit after, this is before Appetite for Destruction was released. It was like hit after hit after hit. You're like, what the, who is this group? You know, so yeah. it's funny that that was, and they didn't do that for anybody else. So I think that, you well, know, you again, like, anybody else. like Rat is, you couldn't have done that for most of these groups. Like yeah. Rat, I think is the Watch what you say, man. Example. Watch what you say. It's obviously a classic, but I mean, that was the cassette that burned me on, on, on oh, okay. was, you know, one, there were probably three good songs on that Rat album i mean and and there was a big hey, fall off from hey, hey man hey man you don't Just need any one rounds and round that's it <laughs> over and over and over again as soon as they show a rat and as soon as you hear that i'm telling you man out on the streets where we meet yeah i even like body talk from uh the golden child <laughs> Oh, ouch, ouch, ouch. And, 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 and I talk about that, how, how this Sunset Strip became a magnet for national act. Like people, Poison is the one that they spotlight, comes from Pennsylvania to go out there. Yeah. There were guys from my hometown doing that. I mean, I had to hear about this for a solid decade of people who so-and-so had been out to LA and had a band or solo was going to go out to, out to LA to have a band. And it was just this... You know, and and you get you would hear these stories, and you'd have you know kids six, seven deep living in rehearsal spaces or or U-Haul storage facilities, and you know many many as the kid who did not turn into poison and it just became a junkie. Or well, even know. who's the cat? Who's the cat from Poison who later claimed that he had been raped during this period? The singer, Brett Michaels, or Ricky Rocket, no, the drummer? No, 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 no. Who am I? Um, no, no, Bobby no, no. Dahl. No, C. C. Deville and Bobby Dahl. C. C. Deville. No, 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 no. Uh, ah, it was a big deal. Like a few, like a year ago, he kind of come out during the whole Me Too thing. It was like, yeah, well, you know, I want to say J Jane, Janie, Jenny. He had a kind of girl's name. You think that's uh cherry pie? That's stupid. You think the guy from Warrant, Janie Lane? Janie Lane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, he How dare Warren. you? Don't, don't. He's from Warrant, not Poison. And and uh, I was friends with a guy who wanted to go be a metal singer in L.A. when I was in college, and he actually liked the first Warrant album. Um, and uh, it, before they became before the Cherry Pie thing, and I might be getting them mixed up with somebody else. I'll have I'll have to check. check. Winger. I saw I saw I saw Dokken, man, and that was the most that was the dreariest show I've ever seen in my life. I, I absolutely hated it saw them live yeah well doc and the thing they had was george lynch was such a shredder that all my meathead guitar yeah. friends would talk you know well you got to give doc and some respect because george lynch I'd be like, no you don't no 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 you don't like you know i did actually go back and listen to the second doc and album to prepare for this and i could make it all the way through which is more than i can say for poison 
and there was one or two songs that weren't the hit single that kind of rocked but kind of rocked <laughs> but the, the sound was so compressed and the vocals were so high that they couldn't ever really get off the ground and they weren't doing anything that van halen hadn't done you know seven years before although the rhythm section was a little better but they do get the story of how poison comes across the country from pennsylvania and i, I love the quote from ricky rocket you know that uh pencil central pennsylvania is just not a good place to be an artist and a musician and i, I just I guess, you yeah. know, there is a place in the world where Ricky Rocket is an artist. And he's like, it's like, I mean, he is. He's not a welder or a steel mill guy, you know, but just the art that he chose to make yeah. is, you know, poison. But yeah, they talked about how they, you know, worked so hard and promoted themselves so hard and, and resorted to all this chicanery to rise to the top of the strip. And, and hey. you know, and was yet another band that took forever to get signed because they had, you know, ex like their manager, uh, Vicki Hamilton here talks about that they struggled with the songwriting and, and it took them a while. And like, yeah, I got to say, <laughs> listen to that first Poison album all the way through. Wow. Um, <laughs> but I can't even stand the, the hits with Poison. Like I remember, yeah, I know. Oh, I know. you know, yeah. I, I mean, the whole thing eluded me, but it was super popular with girls which you know makes it popular with virtually everybody. Yeah, but you, but you know what? But you, they kept hitting that bit and the thing about girls, girls, girls liked it. Girls, they, they would do the same thing. The professors were like, "Oh, girls, you know, they did the same thing that girls like put on makeup." Girls, girls. But then I was reminded of something. A couple of things. I was reminded of that comment in the New York Dolls thing. Said they dress like girls. But uh, they, they, they just like women, but I didn't know any women who look like that. <laughs> so, and the difference between the difference between the New York Dolls and who were out out in place but out of time, and all these LA hair bands is that they did actually look like girls. Yep. You no, know? um, but I, you know, I I've never actively, unless I was somehow strangely forced, like when I went to see Doc and been seen one of these bands. But I see plenty of girls at motorhead shows. I mean, plenty of mm. girls at you know, agnostic front shows. They're just huh. a different type of girl, okay? Well, and also the ratio was totally, totally different. Like, yeah. uh, remember Nelson, uh, Ricky Nelson? Yeah, twin yes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A friend of mine went to the Nelson show at Emerald. Why? And I mean, Love because he's black. Affection. Because he was he was a, a womanizer, and and he. Okay his book was filled with girls he met at the Nelson show for the next 18 months. Like every, we made She's no like, end of fun of him for going to the Nelson show. And then, you know, we'd see him with some hot chick and be like, Joe, man, where'd you meet that girl? Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But hey, listen, man, that's a deal with the devil though. Cause they're sitting hey. around smoking cigarettes, drinking beer and listening to Nelson for five minutes of pleasure. Forget that. It's not worth it. <laughs> Well, like I said, this is his hobby, so, you know. Um, and, and then the next thing they get into is the whole MTV thing and how, you know, MTV totally, totally made this scene. It made this scene from Quiet Riot all the way through. I think the crew, Motley Crue, got big before it got on MTV. But once they did Home Sweet Home on MTV, they got even bigger, you know. And I can remember the stoners at my middle school when um, that third Motley Crue album came out and, and they were not talking it up the way, you know, it was pretty sweet. Like, Hey, yeah. Kenny, 
home sweet home. <laughs> and then he, you know. But did you did you it. also notice did you also notice there was a subtle shift? If we go back even two uh, uh, editions, there's a subtle shift. You and this is something I couldn't figure out. You know why the viewing of this one was redolent with a certain amount of sadness. Like if we go back to not the one you know, but the one before, and they're, they're filming these guys in their house, yep. right? We see Ingve yep. with his for multiple Ferraris in the driveway and stuff like that. But the camera and the frame on this one on the glam one was a little bit tighter. We weren't seeing people in their houses, right? Get <laughs> we saw a few of them in their houses, but yeah, we the saw a lot of them in their Def Leppard, yes, yeah, that's where I'm going with this, man. <laughs> and that's you know. the other thing, comparing these guys to Def Leppard, wow, will this yeah. crap make you appreciate Def Leppard? I mean, you know, it's the same yeah. concept. Def, everything, yeah. everything these guys were doing yeah. was either ripped off of Def Leppard or Van Halen pretty much. Yeah. Motley Crue's kind of an outlier because they they kind of rocked more than the rest of these guys and had darker themes and and so forth. But these guys just all want to be Def Leppard essentially, and yeah. just yeah, just fall massively, massively short on that. And and that's another thing we'll you know talk more in the, in the next segment. But and I and and this was another one where I wonder about the access because they kind of you know they lay out the story. Then they get to Guns N' Roses and it's like, and then Guns N' Roses comes along and breaks all the rules and it gets bigger than anybody. And then we'll talk about how these guys dealt with failure and, and hatred. Like, it's like, could they just not get interviews with Slash or Izzy or Duff? You know, obviously Axel's not going to talk to him, but Slash was in there the... briefly. He was in there briefly. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, they, they spend no time on Guns N' Roses. They, Obviously, didn't get permission. Dude, to play they had all the time in the world to interview Bobby Blotzer and, uh, and <laughs> yeah. Ricky Rocket. <laughs> and and hey, two you, guys. You know where to go, do you? Hey, did I did yeah. I tell you that? I, I think I may be. You could Donna Shalala me on this, but uh, a friend of mine was saying, "Hey, a friend of mine's been looking for you." I go, "Who?" Uh, he's a musician. I mean, he he was just we were in the studio. He was just saying some great shit about you. I go, "Yeah, who?" He goes, "I don't know if you know him." His name is Duff. I, I mean, Duff from Guns N' Roses. He goes, yeah. He, he said his band has played with yours. I go, hey, that's very funny because I've never played with Guns N' Roses. No, 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 his hardcore band. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, he used to be like a hardcore kid. I, go, I don't fucking remember this guy from what, but apparently he had pretty fond memories of these hardcore things. And the guy says, he wants you to call him or something. I said, get his number, I'll call him. And then I, I figure, okay, this guy's maybe a hater. Maybe he's not going to give me Duff's numbers. I'm going to find Duff myself. So I find him online. And I say, they tell me you're looking for me. <laughs> and I go, maybe I shouldn't have phrased it that way. <laughs> looking for me, Duff. Because I never heard from him. I, I, never heard from, I never heard from him again. He's a jiu-jitsu player, you know. So I thought, hey, mm. you got two things, three things in common. So, uh, But I just thought that was weird. Huh, huh. Yeah, well. And then I got then yeah. I then I got into an argument with somebody who said that that in a fight between Axel Rose and David Bowie because Axel Rose punched David Bowie, that David Bowie had more to fear and I called bullshit on that. Hmm. I don't know. I always had the impression that Axel Rose is really tough, but then I was reminded of Vince Neil's feud with Axel yep. Rose and Vince Neil spent yep. years chasing him around trying to get a fight and Vince Neil's not a big dude. But no, he, no. he'll fight it. Oh, and that's the other thing they left out here 
is the time Vince Neil killed the drummer of Hanoi Rock. Yes. And, and yeah. UI accident. And and of all the glam they, bands that could have, would have, should have, yeah. Hanoi Rocks did like yeah. four or five really kicking albums in Finland. Yeah. And before they come to LA to try to make it big in the States, Razzle, their yeah. drummer, well, dies they, in this <laughs> stupid accident with Vince Neil and the band breaks up. You know, yeah. and, and that to me is merits some mention. I mean, it, it was a and big also, career also, step back from Molly Crew. Vince's comment after the guy died when they interviewed him on the Spheres' documentary said, oh, you know, you have any feelings about that? He goes, well, you know, his band wasn't doing that good anyway. That was his, I never forgot that. I said, yeah, that's what it amounts to, man. That, put that on your yeah. gravestone. Well, there are other interviews where he talks about how we were really good friends and the guy died in my arms and I've never forgotten and I've learned a lesson and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, uh, but uh, yeah. yeah okay. it's, and also remember Paul McCartney said some insensitive things when John Lennon got killed. So what do you say? Uh, he said it was, he just said something really glib, glibly like came out and said, oh, it's a big bummer or whatever. And, and people took it wrong. It wasn't like he dissed John Lennon or anything, but it just sounded, sounded glib and uncaring. So. You know, it's it's hard to express how you feel after you've accidentally killed somebody in a drunken driving accident. I guess you know. <laughs> I mean, you you would you would know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. But a good friend of mine killed his best friend in high school like that, and um, you know, I've never really heard him go on and on about how great the guy he killed was or anything. He's talked a lot yeah. about how thankful he is to his dad for spending the money to get him out of out of the legal trouble. So. Who knows? Who knows? Hey, he, knew, he, knew, he knew the risk he took when I got behind that wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, kids, kids, kids make poor judgments. But we'll take a quick break, and when we return, we'll talk about old school metal bands like White Snake, who jumped on the glam trend, and then how Guns N' Roses led the backlash <laughs> against glam inside LA. And now, a word from our sponsors. And we're back to continue our discussion of Metal Evolution's Glam episode. When we when we paused, they were just about to get to the point when Glam got so successful that old bands retrofitted themselves to be Glam. And Whitesnake is the case study they bring up. And it's a pretty classic case study. Coverdale's been around since 
Deep Purple Mark III. He had White Snake for a while. He had John Lord in the band. I mean, and they were continuing down that blues rock. I mean, have you ever listened to the whole White Snake? Yeah. Of what? Like, you yeah. know, they, 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 they mined that field for seven, eight years. And eventually the whole band falls aside. John Lord even leads him. And this Tani Katane quote was, I thought, very telling. That, that when I met David, he was, I found out, about $2 million in debt to Geffen. But he was in a very hopeful stage. <laughs> so they had him, uh, you know, where they wanted him. And they remade him. And, uh, and boy, did they. So Yep. Well, to his credit, right? <laughs> well, to his cash, to his bank account's credit, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it definitely made him more famous than he'd been in the States before that. Yeah. And it set up Coverdale Page, which I think was a nice victory lap for him. I mean, getting to be in that yeah. kind of esteemed company. And did y'all notice this John Kolodner cat? I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but the guy with the super long hair and the mellow yeah. vibe. yeah serious serious power player back in the day like he signed Florida foreigner he's the guy who made aerosmith do cover songs and and remade white snake you know yeah yeah like my job was to make them a commercial rock band in the united states so all he and his focus at the time was on the stylist the makeup artist the video director it was you know a totally totally visual era but what they left out was this cat John Sykes? I don't know if you guys. This is a name that I picked up on in the Nawabum episode. He was the original mm-hmm. guitar player with Tigers and Pantang. Then yeah, he got yeah. poked up in Lindsay. Then he comes in and co-writes almost all the songs, like all but one or two of the songs on the White Snake White Snake album. That was the massive thing. Gets fired before the album comes out. I'm not sure he's in, even in any of the videos, um, mm-hmm. but and doesn't get a mention here. But I think I think merits one. So. I don't know. I, and then Phil Collins comment, and, and they had this guy, Derek Schulman from Polygram too, saying this, you know, the, the whole formula was you had your hard rockers, but if you could get the chicks, then you had, you know, you went from one to 2 million at the ceiling to 5 million, 10 million, mm. the whole bit. So, you know, uh, hard to, hard to argue with. And, and Are these funds that, that I'm seeing? <laughs> 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 oh, am I dreaming? <laughs> Thoughts on White Snake or other other? I know Hart got the same retrofit for the day. White like, Snake was know. one of the that White Snake album. The you know their White Snake White Snake that was one of the many that I got because I liked the song and yeah, I yeah. could not. I could not get into the album at all. And it was just, I can't say album was like a cassette. So it's just staring at you. It's one thing that I don't think people can really appreciate about digital music is when you used to get physical copies of stuff, it would haunt you. It would be there. And think, well, let me listen to it again. Let me give it another listen. Because sometimes stuff grows on you. You're in a different kind of mood. And you don't want to throw it out. And then I remember at a certain point, Kent Mill Records were like, I mean, there was a local DC place. Like they'd buy used uh, cassettes for like pennies on the dollar, you know. So it was was horrible. At least with the digital, you just buy it and move on. Or forget about the fact trying to find a song and drop it, drop the needle in, and then like. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> this is even before before before. Oh, that was even, yeah. 
Yeah, wait, I, I, I got I, I got a heart story for you, though. Do tell. Because you tell. mentioned uh, this guy and his buddy said, let's go to the heart show. We're not really heart fans, but these chicks are hot. What year is so, it? Oh, man. In the 70s. All right. Okay. So, Barracuda. Yeah, he just got back from Vietnam. You know, he's he's fit and trim. So he and his buddy go to the show and they catch their eye. So they say, screw it. Let's go around by the stage door and they meet, you know, Ann and Nancy, right? So they say, hey, why don't you come to our room? And I was like, oh, man. They said, okay, well, we're going to go by our room. We'll get cleaned up. We'll come on up. They go, great. So they like go, you know, they get cleaned up and rushing on up to the room. They get in the room. And he's like knocking the door. Hey, it's us. Hey, come on in. You know, the ho- hotel door is a long hallway. And they're like, we're in like Flint. And they get to the end of the hallway and there are these people on their knees. And it turns out, they, they turn to the guys and say, hey, we're just having a, a prayer group. These are our parents. And so you want to join us in prayer? And the guys were thinking, you know, I knew somebody was going to be on their knees, but I never imagined it like this. <laughs> so, I thought it was going to so, end up like a Chuck Berry story with the, with no, the man. sourcing for no, the guitarist. <laughs> and, and because, and because they were like, yeah, they were young men, they just said they went with it. They just kind of got on their knees and prayed. I mean, at that point, I would have been like, oh, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's quite a tale. Quite a tale there. I don't that's know. my heart story. Yeah. That's Barry. That's a good one. And so yeah. then the next topic they bring up is power ballads. And yeah, and they don't have anything good to say about power ballads. They don't even play a good example of one. I thought, I guess it's probably expensive to get the rights to Sweet Child of Mine. But that was, to me, one of the few late period power ballads that was effective. Great guitar lick, you know, and, and mm. good song. Whereas most of this stuff, like, poisons every rose has its thorn and i mean uh motley Crue's home sweet home that was when i gave up on motley Crue. i mean when that theater pain record came out and i'd been a crew skeptic up to that point and i was i could barely contain myself just reading the crowd there was like seven eight guys two of whom were friends of mine the rest were these stoner creeps i was scared of and just waiting like this sucks does everybody else realize this sucks and then the tide didn't turn that day, but it did turn. It did turn. Yeah. But then they came back. So, you know, what are you going to do? I don't know, man. This this segment made me una- unexpectedly depressed by the end, you know. Because of the whole failure and the, the sad lives of the... Yeah. And, and what was, you know, what was it Jake LaMotta said? It's the punches you don't see that hurt you the most. I mean, they really thought Aerosmith, Rolling Stones, Warrant. No. Um, <laughs> What's crazy yeah. too is when you watch it and you realize that given the time that mm-hmm. because the internet was not around, like the whole notion of, okay, here's a platform, right? So you're famous because of this thing and then maybe you can make some kind of career out of it. It's just, man. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. It totally wasn't there. Counterpoint, having grown up with a ton of these morons who either went out to LA briefly or thought they were going to go out to LA and never shut up about it and would never shut, no matter what you were listening to, REM, they're never going to make it. This crap, you know, black flag, why are you wasting the time on this shit? You know, and, and just endless. And, and, or, or yeah. the guys who knew better, but would like decide they wanted to be a hair metal singer. And so they'd like, I knew a guy still a friend of mine. He, he, he like had the first Warren album and studied it, you know, like, he knew this was garbage, but he 
you know, thought that this was going to be a career path for him. So he was, you know, so it's, I have no pity for these clowns. I mean, mm-hmm. none. There was, it was a, an atrocious scene. Well, and- you're, you're, a, you're a heartless, loosely binding, hitting the guy in the face type of guy. You know. <laughs> Death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. I was backed, I was backed into a corner. Totally right. backed into a That was corner. you in the corner. Well, but, but, no, but, I mean, <laughs> Ooh, that's when I gave up on REM I'll tell you that I, I got an REM story for you uh, by all means uh, uh, one uh, Michael uh, Stipe invites Rollins to his house in North Carolina Henry, he goes Rollins. To his, Henry Rollins goes to his house and he's like come on I want to show year? you something this has got to be 85 okay Right. So he says, uh, hey, "Come on, come on in. I want to show you something, man." And he's like, "Yeah." And he walks down the hallway, and there's a door. He opens the door, and the room is completely empty, except, except for his for parents one. who are praying. What? No. Close, <laughs> close. There's nothing in the room but a bicycle. That's it. He's like, "Hey, Henry, look at look look at that." Henry's like, "Yeah, okay." No, he goes, "No, no, really." He's like, "Yeah." Okay, I gotta get back to planet Earth, man. <laughs> that was it. Other one, outside outside the MTV building, Michael Stipe is there waiting to be recognized. He's got a big cat in the hat hat on and a red and white scarf. And he's like looking around. And it's New York, you know. A friend of mine, Camille, is there and she's there with her sister and she recognizes him right away. But it's like, you know, they just couldn't that was more recent. <laughs> that was like with that the was cat like hat hat. I mean, yeah, and that was like two thousand and five, I think. So, ooh, yeah. yeah, those things were well played out by say eighty yeah. nine. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ouch, ouch. So the thing they leave out about power balance, though, is the noble tradition from which the power balance sprang: Stairway to Heaven, Dream On, Freebird, all that stuff. And other than Sweet Child of Mine, I mean, every one of those things is just has no dynamics, no build, no power. That's, you know, I mean, the power ballad, it was a dark, dark period. Then they move on. Also, I think they they should have gone deeper into the Guns N' Roses thing because the Guns N' Roses, they kind of give it a, a wink and a nod, but that was really a transformative moment. And they laid out a blueprint for how they could fucking, how you could, if you were making that type of music, proceed yep. ahead. And they, they they got lost in local, blatant localism and infighting. And I, I mean, do you remember when like, um, who was the other band that were like, fuck Guns N' Roses, we're going to kick their ass if we see, I mean, it was just, and the train had already well, left true. the station. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The train had already left us. You weren't going to, those guys were going to be monsters and you couldn't stop it. You should have figured out how to get on that train, you know? Yeah, well, the crew the crew did pretty well for themselves, and I definitely do think they gave the, the Guns N' Roses short shrift because basically just they play no songs by them. They they talk to Slash, which is a great get, but I mean, you know, Duff is around. Yeah. Izzy has been super reclusive, so I, and obviously Axel was a definitive recluse in this this yeah, period yeah. when they made this. But on Steven yeah. Adler, <laughs> yeah, they could have. Uh, he's got plenty of <laughs> to talk about sad tales. Yeah, yeah, but they they you know they did get the general gist that Guns N' Roses was more of a band band and bucked the tide. They didn't get into how Slash was the first guy who dispensed with the Eddie Van Halen invitation and just played blues as as well. Tide. 
right. Yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, and then that was a clue that the Van Halen thing was totally played as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and also a clue should have been um, C.C. Deville for Poison tapping badly. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, but the other thing they leave out is the whole Poison on MTV Awards meltdown. Like I yeah. watched this live, which is one of the best Schadenfreude moments this side of the Aussie collapse. I mean, <laughs> we've been hating on poison and yet faithful MTV watchers my entire college career. And yeah. I remember the day I, I had a rocking chair and I had a jug that I drank water out of. This is my disgusting <laughs> water jug that my roommates always made fun. And I'm sitting there drinking my water in the jug, passing the bong around, and poison comes out and plays two separate songs at the same time and has a screaming fight live on the MTV Awards. I mean, how do you leave this off, this documentary? Like, there was more than grunge and Guns N' Roses that killed Poison. It was complete, just, you know, hubris and idiocy and and the whole bit. But the other thing they left out with this Guns N' Roses thing, there were two, two ways that they left out. First is there was a wave of bands that came in their way trying to be legit hard rock bands instead of glam metal bands. And with some of them, like Skid Row, it was just a matter of taking the makeup off Mm -hmm. and and taking some of the hair out. Although Skid Row did rock harder than, say, Warrant or Winger. Not that that's challenging. Um, I even went back and listened to the Skid Row album. Not good. Way better than Poison. But, you know. Um, But there was also Tesla. A junkyard that had Brian Baker of Minor Threat and Chris Gates of the Big Boys in there, and they were good live, but the record, uh, yeah, didn't pull it off. And it was, and that was a flagrant sellout attempt. You we, know? When, we, when we when we play, and and nobody gave. I mean, Brian could do no wrong because of the Minor Threat thing. You know, uh, my first conversation with him was hilarious because he was like, "Oh, you had a lot of energy out there," and I was like, "Uh huh." lot of energy and I was like man it's just it's just good clean living you know i, I think he was willing to accuse me, trying to mr straight edge trying to accuse me of being the cokehead i was like no i right. see i see well you should have brought up his tenure in the meat man i mean come oh, on exactly. war of the superbikes was with, yeah with dutch hercules when a war of the yeah. superbikes was a genius concept it just lacked execution yeah entirely entirely well, they also but, yeah. could have had the transition from nugent to Mr. Yeah. Big, right? Like, didn't he oh, have that yeah. whole? Yeah, yeah. Can take well, him high enough. Was Nugent and Mr. Big? He was in Damn Yankees, which is another I John Garrett. Oh yeah, creep. one of those groups. Oh yeah. yeah. Damn and Yankees. if you ever watch the sticks behind the music, uh, it's yeah. hilarious all the way through because there's the blonde little guy. I think Tommy DeYoung maybe that's in Sticks that clearly had ambitions to be a macho rocker like all his friends but like was in sticks and wasn't then there's the guy who's the broadway singer type and they have this rivalry but when damn yankees forms and the tommy guy from sticks is in damn yankees uh he really puffs his chest out and has ted nugent back at him and you know i think even it's it's a highly recommended behind the music but we're a little off topic and the other thing they left off is and this actually had more traction was the alternative rock scene in LA at the yep. same time that yes. Guns N' Roses kind of mixed in with as well. But you had Jane's Addiction, which came out yep. big. Red Hot Chili Peppers was in all that. I know, I know about you and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but still they were they were a factor. Fishbone was in there um, yes, and for a minute was in the major label backing and was an incredible, yep. incredible band, possibly still the best is. band. Still are they? Is. Yeah. I haven't seen them in 
20 something years and you had the nymphs which was which was a band in that yep. style with the chick singer that was really good although i think she sprayed urine all over a record executive's desk at geffen at some point and uh, allegedly that was the story i heard but uh, didn't get the the big push that they might have gotten no. with Sam's some people, urine spray. Some people have accused me of masturbating on the audience, and that never happened either. So these stories get out of control. That's that's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, but they do. I, mean, I did masturbate. <laughs> we don't need, to... <laughs> but not yeah, on yeah. the audience. <laughs> uh, of course, oh. of course. I did. I did find the whole pdf of sam dunn's metal evolution family tree though and he does oh. have a hold a hard alternative category with like faith no more jane's addiction prong uh, living yeah. color and so there was this whole thing and living color went platinum jane's addiction had two platinum albums i think yeah. and that whole little phase gets totally forgotten because everybody just says it was grunge that came along and so they never away. they ne so they never go back to it in this series, yeah. I don't believe they they oh. covered that those guys at all. We'll and they see. were so big. Yeah, the oh, yeah, they were Jane's, big. The first time I heard about Jane's addiction, it was in uh, in Flipside, which had been one of the the punk rock journals of note. So they, you know, their bona their punk rock bona fides were well in place. I mean, same with despite my hatred with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but they, everybody always kind of thought the upside was going to be much higher for Jane's Addiction, you know, because they were tall. And it would have been if kind of, hadn't broken up the band. Yeah. I mean, you Porno know, for they, Pyros. They, yeah. yeah no, and, that, and and also the, then Eric Avery, the bass player, who seems to have written all the songs, like yeah. Nothing Shocking is all built on these incredible bass riffs. And then yeah. they fire him and he's been persona non grata in that camp for like 25 years now. You never hear about him. They bring yeah. Flea in, who's like the most inappropriate bass player for that. They brought you know, and that time Dave Navarro went over to the Chili Peppers and they discovered, wow, we lost our songwriter and you're not Jane's Addiction songwriter. <laughs> well, Frusciante no. was probably the best, best guy. They yeah, had. Yep. absolutely. He's, he's came back. Far. They, yeah. yeah, he's absolutely the talent. And, and, and uh, Harley, Harley, at, at, as we speak, is in L.A. hanging out with Harley uh, Flanagan. Chromax. Yeah, from the Chromax is hanging out with Flea because they always get confused for the for being for being each other. Um, but he's in L.A. hanging out with him now, and they've taken pictures so you can see that they they do indeed look alike, same height, but they're different, very different people. But I, you know, yeah, yeah. One yeah, tried to run you yeah. over. Did the other one try to run you over too, or no? <laughs> Harley has not tried to run me over. Harley's uh, been nothing but nice to me, you know. Yeah, they're all all time New York New York pals. Oh. The other thing they leave out about the 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 grunge thing is there was a significant period of several years where Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Mother Lovebone that had three fifths of Pearl Jam in it were all on major labels. They're all being marketed as metal bands. Yeah, like I saw Soundgarden opening up for Danzig. Um, I saw Alice in Chains opening up for for Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth, and boy did they annihilate Megadeth! But but it's you know. true, and that's what's funny is I never during the time when grunge was like hitting, I wasn't into it at all. But I was into Soundgarden, you know, and I was into Alice in Chains. They they just didn't, at the time they did not seem like like a, a Pearl Jam and all that kind of. No. I, I just I wasn't feeling any of that grunge stuff. Barely felt Nirvana, but Soundgarden was a nice transition, and then also Alice in Chains too. So it's I think yeah. those are for me. For me, Soundgarden was an SST band, 
So they were, if you remember, Ultra Mega mm, OK. Right, right. Uh -huh. Yep, yep, yep. Which was an elaborate yeah. ruse that A&M Records put together where A&M signed them and then this is allegedly again and cut to deal with SST to put out an album on SST as, as a sort of credibility laundry, not realizing if they had done that with Sub Pop, Sub Pop would have taken the money too and the credibility would have been even higher because by that point SST was putting out. I had a coworker who was, who was in Seattle during that time and then he was talking about how when when grunge hit, they were getting all these calls to the journalists from New York journalists who didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. And he and his friends who are Seattle-based journalists are making shit up. They're like, oh, yes, it's a so-and-so, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Like it was making like a mess, you know. It's the classic like, grunge lingo thing that the New York Times, I think it was the Times ran, that somebody yeah. just totally made up by the whole cloth. So, yeah, that was which a is, feeding which, frenzy. Which, which is how Helmet got signed. <laughs> I, I like Christ. Helmet. Oh, I like Helmet. So much. They suck. Um, they don't, they're not worth three million dollars. Paige Hamilton is weak. He's weak. Well, He's like signed three million dollars, and 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 they never had any songwriting ability, but they yep. they had a riff style that Pantera made their whole career out of. And uh, yeah, you've people said that before. It's well documented. Pantera saw uh, Helmet and and DFW, and and totally swiped that the way they lock the bass, drums, and guitar together for a 90s-style riffing. And that's the big question. They've got Pantera on the thrash set in the in the Evolution Tree. So next episode, we'll get to see if they talk about Pantera or not. Because to me, Pantera's like the metal band of the 90s. Like, they yeah. were, you know, the... Yeah, and, and so... You know, it's it's a chance for Sam Dundas. Speaking of Rollins, I mean, I hope they when they came when they came out, you know, he had shaped and Selma got rid of the hair and and showed up muscled and tattooed, and somebody said, hey, you know, it's kind of on the Rollins vibe, and Rollins started, you know, kicking shit about it, and somebody goes back to Phil and Selma, you know, in true fashion, goes, hey, Rollins said, he's like. I'm not listening to some guy who's never even sold more than 20,000 records. <laughs> it was like, ding, done. I mean, it was just such a great, you know, it's like, you sell more than 20,000 records? We could talk, but until then, go fuck yourself. It was nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and some of, yeah, then later Tangles and the whole getting diamond yeah, getting killed thing. Listen, he, and he, he's, been, he's been nothing but nice to me. Yes, yes. Like Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> so many yes, other that, Jim so Goad and, and so many other that sounds like and, a good band always nice to Eugene who would ever thought these guys would play together but they're always nice we, to you. something about to, it yeah yeah. we should should bring it back to the episode so then they end they spend a full 15 minutes yeah. on the post metal lives of these glam musicians which I Jeez. thought was interesting excessive it was depressing man it was a little I don't. I mean, what is so horrible about some meathead like Bobby Blotzer owning vending machines? I mean, there are far. Yeah, those worse hands endings. were not meant for replacing yeah. juicy fruits. No, 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 listen. Let me tell you, it was. It wasn't so much. That's not a depressing way. If I had vending, I'd be completely happy to have a vending machine, right? But it's not. It was their sense of the ridiculousness of their what they would describe as a predicament that was sad. Like they were sad about it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it was a little sad, and and um the whole you know there's the circuit where they do was it 
warrant. I think that the, they said we yeah. play 50 gigs can, a year. Can, They're almost all on the weekends. Yeah. yeah, candy fairs and these metal festivals. And so he has to have a day job at a guitar shop. And then on the weekends, he goes out and plays these gigs, which there are many worse fates than. You know, but no, listen, 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 listen. There's, there's, a, there's a friend of mine, and I'm not going to mention his name, right? So he had a band that was of note back in the day, you know, starts a new band, wants to go on tour with Oxbow, you know, tour agent puts the show together, a whole tour, like Pacific Northwest, his band would be opening, great opportunity. He's got like a celebrity band and lots of people, but from a different era, you know, and uh, they say, well, how much, you know, how much are you going to pay? So, well, in an opener, you guys would get $100. I'm not saying this. The booking agent is saying this. And he canceled. He canceled the tour. And what's he doing now? He's gone back to his original band from like 84, 85, just to play the play the songs from back then. Well, and you so know. That, no, there's that uncomfortable period that those guys would have had to, like somebody said, we're not playing new songs. You gotta, if, you, if you're if you a musical artist, you play those fucking new songs and let people catch up to you or fuck off or mm. play the nostalgia circuit. But I'm not going to feel sorry for them because they're playing the nostalgia circuit. Some people, that's no. fine. That's fine. You know. It's a good gig. I mean, or, Chuck Berry or, had to play, do it. Play new songs. Simple. Yeah, but or, nobody wants Chuck to hear Poison new songs. And, and they the even name. bring in. I mean, it was about staying about. Uh, Every about daisy feels so smooth. Yeah. <laughs> in a better I, mood. I, I did like they brought brought the academic, the the, who, the woman who had helped oh, explain yeah. so many she things about the glam, she was great. glam yeah. phenomenon, and then have her come back in to say, glam metal didn't produce a new generation musician, so now they're they're doomed to this this nostalgia circuit, and it's totally true. I mean, yep. that's yep. that's really this, how the, I. The, those guys I were mean, all the, pricks. They were all pricks, and so their music like, sucked. It was it was derivative, derivative garbage, just watered down to the point where there was no there there. But like, there were some good, like Hanoi Rocks. I went back and listened to for this episode. They have like four or five really good albums, and yeah. and the last album. I mean, if if you know Vince Neil hadn't killed Razzle, mm-hmm. Hanoi Rocks would have been massive. I guarantee you, they had the look. The sound, the whole bit. I mean, and that would have been a whole different world if Hanoi Rocks had gone platinum. There wouldn't have been any space for Poison, for example. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. they actually had musical ideas, you know. And, and then uh, there was a band Candy that that uh, Gilby Gilby Clark, I think, later ends up in Guns N' Roses was in. That sounds like this total cross. Do you remember the Paisley Underground, Eugene? Yeah, I know you. Of do. course. Which of was course. another LA scene that was getting a bunch of hype. It had the Bangles in it, Dream yep. Syndicate. Uh, oh, Rain come Parade, on. Green on Red. Go, go back, go back. The first one. Salvation through, through the Army. three o'clock? Uh, the three o'clock, yeah. The Salvation no, Army. It, yeah. They had to change it. They were the Salvation Yeah. Three o'clock. To, and with become the, the three o'clock. Girl, with the Cantaloupe Girlfriend. Big hit, great yeah. song. I still play yeah. it. Big underground or college radio hit. But, yeah. but Candy was like a cross between the Paisley Underground and Glam Metal. It, it's a totally out of print album, but thanks to Miracle View. Well, also, you, also, you know, with these guys completely neglected, and if you like the New York Dolls, it was like they were mining, you know, they were dressing like women because they were mining some sort of, you know, 
sexual outlaw thing. You know, these guys were just like dressing like women because it's like I don't know. I guess kind of Bowie did it, right? I don't. I don't know. You know, it's like if they even knew who Bowie was. I mean, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. The yeah. the that glam aspect of it, I I'll never forget finding that first Poison cassette in Bubba Malone's car. Bubba Malone and God bless him if he's out there. Hi, Bubba. Um, was was the little brother of my girlfriend in high school. And he has this Poison album, and I'm like, and this is the first time I'd seen it. I, I we didn't have MTV in my hometown, and I was just like, "What the hell is Bob doing?" Like, I wanted to show his parents, like, "What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you are you keeping an eye on Bobby here?" Because you know, but somehow in the '80s, like it's in the '70s, the New York Dolls that got them pariah status, and I can yeah. remember in the. 80s trying to sell my friends on punk rock and they'd look at the new york dolls up oh, and you know spew the f-bomb and 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 bail but then four years later they're buying poison cassettes like it's yeah. nothing you know yeah. and it clearly it was nothing it had nothing to do with their sexuality at all i mean yeah. they were absolute pig hetero cis het you know oppressors anyway any final thoughts on glam ready to move on to better music I- <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you now it's like almost a drinking game except without the benefit of alcohol every time I see Sam Dunn striding down a street I want to shoot a Canadian <laughs> it's just like you can't think of a you can't think of a better setup than just have him walk in places just come on man hey this is the mid 2000s this is yeah, early yeah. In, the, in the in the documentary yeah. uh, days or Canada something stuff, I don't know man yeah. yeah, but now the Canadian hate has spilled over into my co-host. So no, no, it hasn't. It hasn't. What you guys don't know is that a Canadian production company has approached me about a TV show. So I Ooh. love the Canadians. I just want to show <laughs> Sam Dunn. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Anyway, well, that's it for this episode. We'll be back next time to discuss Thrash, which should be a much more musically enjoyable I, session. So, yes. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate, Eugene, and Alexi continue the history of heavy metal with a discussion of Thrash, the scene that launched Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 